but I loved it. It was a passion, right? And that's one thing I think I notice with kids, with coach, and even my own kids. It's um, I think that passion's got to come from within, right? And if they have that passion and that drive and that fire, you know, anything is possible. That was 20-year pro Frank Bannum, and you are listening to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Padola. Just watch me now. Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Podolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for 1,000. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there and welcome back or welcome to the At My Hockey Podcast with Jason Padolan. I am your host, Jason Padolan. And today we have on Frank Bannum for our holiday special. So I'm, I'm recording this intro on the 27th. Uh, I actually did the interview with Frank a little bit before Christmas. But if you're listening to this kind of as it is released, happy holidays. I hope that you and your family have had a great holiday season and is enjoying a little bit of time off in some R&R. I know my family and I are and it's been... Um, this is the most amount of time I've spent at my desk here in the last four days, which is something that I can't really say in the last 12 months has happened. So, um, so yeah, warmest of wishes to you. Uh, but yeah, back to Frank. So Frank, Frank is a name that maybe you don't know um, as a casual hockey fan. He did, he did play 20 years professionally. Uh, he was a draft pick of the Washington Capitals, <clears throat> and he did happen to score 83 goals in one WHL season. Uh, which is quite remarkable. And he was actually part of a line that is, I believe, historical in WHL history. Uh, his line put up 193 goals in the 1995-96 season. Uh, he, he, his centerman was Mark Dayell. Uh, those two guys had unbelievable chemistry. And uh, and Mark loved to pass the puck, and Frank loved to shoot the puck, and and uh, so that was a good combination there. And they also had Clark Wilm. Clark Wilm went on to a to a pretty remarkable, well, not remarkable, but a, a very very solid uh, NHL career. And uh, and he was the other winger on that line who kind of didn't get as much credit as maybe he deserved. And we talked about that um, in the conversation with Frank. But uh, but yeah, that line scored 193 goals. Clark had 49. Uh, Frankie had 83 and Mark Dayell had 61, and uh, and and as far as uh, total points are concerned, Mark Dayell had 159 that year and Frankie had 152. Clark had 110. Uh, the 159 points is is the most that's been put up since that season, so nobody has been able to eclipse that mark in however long that is now. Um, jeepers, what is that? 25 years. And uh, and no one scored more than eighty three goals. So really historical, uh, historical type of stats for for that season. And um, and yeah, so we talk about that season quite a bit. We talk about Frank uh, moving on and what, what his pro, um, his how what his journey to the NHL looked like. He did get some NHL games. He was actually able to score nine goals in twenty one games in one of his call ups with the uh, with the Anaheim Ducks. And we cover that a little bit. That that by the way is about a thirty four thirty five goal pace if he was to play an entire season in the NHL. I mean that those types of numbers would get you you know six seven million dollars a year now. And for Frank, what it got him was not even really another kick at the cat. He he didn't make the team the next year. He wasn't called up. He got he got called up like three or four years later by the Phoenix Coyotes for five games, 
and uh, and that was kind of it for Frank. So less than 100 games in the NHL. He did play for uh, for the, for Anaheim, and he did play for for Phoenix. But then he decided to move on and take his uh, take his game overseas, where he had a ton of success overseas, and really found a home over there and found his uh, you know his love for it again. Uh, it's it's a grind. It is a grind being an being a AHL prospect. Uh, I've, we've covered that before. You know the 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 bus rides and the wanting to get up to the NHL. Maybe you do get your cup of coffee and trying to fight your way through and and trying to become an NHL regular is is no small task and no small feat when people do it. And uh, and for Frank with his injuries and stuff, it was just started to weigh on him. And he decided to to go to Helsinki and he went over to Helsinki and. And he played a year in Russia, and he was over in the Swiss League, and he was in Austria, and then he ended up actually in, in um, Hungary at the end of it all, and uh, and had a great time in Hungary. He actually had so much fun that they asked him to uh, if he would get his citizenship there so he could play internationally with the Hungarian team, which he did. Uh, he helped Hungary get out of Pool B into Pool A, and uh, as a 40-year-old, uh, we talk about Frank playing against the legs of Connor McDavid and Brad Marchand for Team Canada at the World Championships, and uh, what a crazy uh, experience that was for him. So it's an awesome conversation. Uh, I really did enjoy the conversation with Frank, and we do get really serious for a little while when we talk about Wade Belak, which uh, a 500-game NHLer in himself was a big, tough, strong enforcer from the blue line, uh, a first-rounder to Quebec, and, and was Frank's roommate in Saskatoon playing with the Blades. and. Um, we, we lost Wade, uh, geez, 10, 15 years ago now. And, um, and yeah, we, we spent some time talking about that and, and, uh, and mental health and, uh, you know, and, and what it feels to lose somebody like that. And so we do get serious for a little while as well and, and, and give uh, Wade the respect that he deserves and, and allowed Frank some time to, to reflect on his good buddy. And, but other than that, we, we talk hockey and we talk development and we talk, uh, upbringing and, and passion and, and, and all the, all the things you'd expect from an up my hockey interview. So, uh, once again, happy holidays. And, uh, I give you my conversation. Frank Joining us from Cincinnati. Jeez. What state is that? Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, Frankie Bannum. Thanks to come for coming on the show, Frank. Thanks for having me, Pots. Appreciate it. Hey man, no problem. This has been a long time in the making. We've kind of had a little mini discussions here and there over the years, and uh, we're finally doing it. So thanks for thanks for getting on. Yeah, it's always great to catch up with uh, past. Uh, I guess we never played together, but just um, you know, that's the one thing from when you retire, you kind of miss is just that um, the connection you have with with other players, right? It's, no doubt, man. And the length of time that you played twenty years, you must have a lot of uh, a lot of old teammates in the in the in the database right like it's yeah crazy. all I over just, the world <laughs> yeah i just i forget who i talked to um just the other day and i mentioned that i was chatting with you oh it's gonna come to me but anyways they were like oh yeah and they played with you somewhere overseas god i want to remember who that was but anyways it, it happens all the time right the uh it, you know, it doesn't take seven the, the seven connections or the seven steps you don't have to go that far usually in hockey to, to find a guy who played with you or or with somebody else yeah the hockey world's definitely, definitely small world. That's for sure. And it's, we, uh, um, yeah. And before we got on here, we just said that you're you're in Cincinnati, and then then ironically, that was that was my very very first ever pro experience with the Cyclones. So the the Cyclones at the time, well, that was the IHL for for the yeah. listeners that don't uh, remember or, or don't know. Uh, there was the two leagues, the International Hockey League, which was generally an older 
more established league, right? It was guys that had played pro for quite a while or guys that had already been in the NHL and kind of were winding their careers down. And then there's the AHL, which was more of the developmental league that was, you know, still providing prospects up to the NHL. But there was some affiliations back then that were like with NHL programs. So the Florida Panthers, for instance, their uh, their minor league team was the uh, was the Cincinnati Cyclones. So I was drafted by Florida, and then that first year after playoffs, they called me up for their playoffs. So I was 18, I think. Um, yeah, I think it would have been 18. Or maybe no, 19, because my birthday's in February. So it would have been 19. I was 19 at the time, and I called up to Cincinnati with a really old team, right? Like 30-year-olds, <laughs> and like like uh, Dallas Eakins was on that team. There was a bunch of guys there. Tony Biggs. Yeah, exactly. Paul Lawless, uh, Biggs, yeah. like you said, there was a t- lot of guys on that team that were very established. And then there was me running around Cincinnati, not knowing what the hell was going on. But uh, <laughs> so we have a connection there. Do they have a team there still? I didn't even, I don't even know. Yeah, they do actually. There's still the Cincinnati Cyclones. They play in the ECHL. So they're affiliated with uh, Rochester. So oh, okay. So umbrellaed under the Buffaloes organization. Yeah. All right, because there's a lot more players, actually. I don't know <clears throat> how many there in uh, Cincinnati, but there seems to be a lot more players in the East Coast League that are on NHL deals now. Yeah, it seems that way. Yeah, that's so – I think that's uh, why they are all affiliated now with an ECHL team. So, right. you know, they, they know they have uh, they have a spot to, to send their, you know, their prospects. And um, um, Jason Payne's an old teammate of mine from the Mighty Ducks here. He's the coach there now, so – you know, they, they run everything kind of under Buffalo. So Buffalo comes in and they use right, their goalie right. coach. And Is he the all he was, on, I read yeah. stuff on him. He's, he's the first black coach in pro hockey history, right? Isn't that what? Yeah. That what, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So what, what, what was he like as a player? What was he like to play with? Oh, he was a tough bugger. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, we brought him up. I think at that point he was playing in Dayton in the ECHL back when they had a team and, uh, yeah, we we didn't know much on him when he when he came to our team, but you know, heard he was pretty tough and, and he was. I don't I don't, th- I don't know if he fought the first game or not, but we're like huh, we're kind of like because he's not a very big guy, you know, he's he's solid, but uh, we're like you know how tough is this guy? And man, he dropped his gloves. I think first uh, fight was against Gary Burnett, who was playing in Lexington, and man, yeah, we're like okay, he's the real deal. <laughs> yeah, he was a tough tough cookie that one, but. Just did you ever see coaching in his horizon, or did you play with him long enough to really know? I'm sorry. Did you ever see coaching in in his future? Like, did you or did you? No, I didn't actually. No, no, I knew after he was done playing, he was doing um, skills, you know, lessons and stuff in in the Toronto area, and um, yeah, and I think he was coaching midgets or or some level there. But he's done a great job, Cincinnati. Um, you know, he's he's a great person. Um, I would view him as like a player's coach, which is kind of, you know, that's more today's game and model. Um, yeah. So sure. yeah, he's done well. And I'm happy for him. That's cool. Yeah. Where um, do you get out there and watch any of those games? What what is? Do you, do you know what that league looks like now? <clears throat> yeah, it's. Uh, I get out. I get down to watch some of the games. It's you know, it's come a long way from back when we played. I think you know, back in our era, it was that was basically the end of the line or end of the road, really, if you ended up there, right. It wasn't, wasn't the highest level, but um, I think now you just see even, you know, what I noticed playing in Europe was over those years, you know, I was there in spurts from 2000 to 2016 and you could just see over the years how 
you know, the levels had closed um, on the leagues, for example, UK compared to Switzerland or those leagues. And you see it now in the Champions League where that um, that gap is closed within all the leagues. And that, right. you know, that, that carries worldwide. And so now you watch this, this ECHL. I mean, these players are, they're not far off, you know, from, you know, trying to make it the big stage. It's obviously a long road for them because, you know, basically you're going to leapfrog all your players that are in the AHL that are obviously all under contract as well. But uh, you see it often with goalies, for example. You know, I remember watching the Cyclones were playing in the finals against Reading, and that's when Quick was playing in the ECHL. So you see goalies a lot. Right. You know, they they only got to leapfrog two players where where a forward, right? You got to leapfrog maybe 12 or 13 that are in the AHL. So, yeah, I know it's a big, that was actually the, uh, that was the story with Spencer Martin this year. I mean, he was number five on the Vancouver Canucks depth chart there for a while and he hadn't played an NHL game in whatever, six, seven years. And it just takes a few guys to go down, right. Or somebody to underperform. And now all of a sudden he's like the starter in Vancouver for the last three weeks or whatever. It's been pretty, pretty cool to watch him. And then you must have, uh, well, I, mean, I know you know the name and you probably played with him somewhere or against him for sure, but Glenn Metropolit I had on a little while ago and uh, yeah. he was one of the first, well, I shouldn't say one of the first, but it was rare back then. I mean, he was one of those guys that played in the East Coast League and then made it to the A and then made it to the show and then stayed in the show, right, for for a while. Like, what a super cool story that was. You you, you can't help but love those guys that that, that make it, right, from, from no, the East yeah. Coast. Like, such a fantastic story. Well, Metro, you know, I, I know him well. We're good friends. We still, you know, keep in touch to this day. And um, just his work ethic, you know, I remember playing against him. Man, he was, a, for his size, he was a strong bugger. And he worked. He worked his tail off every day. You know, he was in the gym after practice shooting pucks, you know. Um, that's the one thing. If you have that determination, um, you know, and you, and you stick to it, eventually, you know, you want it bad enough, you're going to get there. And that's, you know, a lot of respect to Metro and kind of where he where he came from and and where he got to. Um, and was a, was an unbelievable player too. Yeah, really, really good, good player. player. Yeah, yeah. His uh, the one story that I've actually used with some of my players uh, now that that I'm working with just from the mindset side, you know, because adversity is going to happen, right? Regardless whether you're Frank Bannum or Jason Panola or Glenn yeah. Metropolit, like or Connor McDavid, right? Like something something's yeah. going to happen, right? And it's like how you're going to digest that and what story you're going to tell yourself and the one that stuck out to me with metro was uh he i think he just scored 120 points or something in the in the bchl and he he, he made uh made his pro sort of debut and he was in almost made the ahl team i think he was in the east coast and the east coast team had you know a lot of older guys he said it was a good team and and uh it was it was such a good team that he not not only did he not play but he was sleeping on the stairs of the bus like that's where his that's where his spot was by the bus driver oh, and, yeah. uh, and he said he was a healthy scratch for the first 20 games i believe sleeping on the stairs of the bus and the road trips and you know like in this day and age like how many guys would have done that right like he would still oh, be there and not yeah. have gone home right and and in two years like frankie i think it was two years from that point he ended up getting in the lineup ended up turning into a point of game guy that year uh, and I think it was two or three years later, he was in the NHL, like from sleeping on the stairs of the bus, right? Like, I, I yeah. just love that. Like, that's like yeah. stuff movies are made out of. Yeah, I mean, that, that adversity part is is an important part. That's why, I, you know, I believe, you know, I coach in the area as well. And it's, um, you got to let the younger kids face and experience a little bit. Um, because eventually, you know, they want to continue 
climbing the ladder and getting to the top levels, you're going to face that at some point. So you need to have an understanding how to deal with it, how to work through it. And, um, you know, you get to 17, 18, 19 years old or 20, and, and all of a sudden you're facing that for the first time. It's, um, you know, it, it could be harder on some people to, to work through that. Yeah. Well, how do you, uh, so if you're a coach there, what, what levels are you, are you working with? Um, I work with all the levels really in this area, kind of, um, with all, you know, practices and trainings and, right. and then coaching wise, I'm usually, you know, just with the O nine group. So it'd be like the 13 U. Oh, okay. Um, cool. Yeah. That's the, that's the age of my, my oldest son is, is an O nine. Um, uh, but you mentioned like you want them to experience adversity or maybe it sounds like you would even like architect it or engineer it in sometimes. Like what do you think is appropriate level of adversity or what are you speaking about with kids at younger ages that you'd, you'd want them to try and uh, experience something so they can get through it? Yeah, you know, the, the one thing with USA Hockey, I don't know if they do the same in Canada, but it's, um, you know, they run the shifts at like two minutes when you're playing half ice. And do they do the same in, yeah. So... It, 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 to me, it's a bad habit they get into. So it, it's hard when you get them out of that age into, I guess that would be, you know, you're going from um, mites to squirts and, um, you know, just getting them to buy in and staying on, you know, playing fast as a team that, you know, all of you got to stay at 45 seconds to a minute, right? That's how you, that's how you play fast as a team. And, but, you know, some of them are used to like, well, I'm just going to stay out here till two minutes <laughs> um, and of course, yeah, you stay out there, you, you keep waiting, you know, something's going to probably maybe happen eventually, right? Cause the game goes so fast back and forth. Um, but you know, just trying to, trying to teach them that part, like, Hey, it's, it's everybody is a team. And, um, you know, it's when you're, when you're taking 45 second minute shifts, you're more of a sprint than rather two minutes waiting for something to happen. You know, now you're going out there to make something happen. Um, you know, and that, and then, you know, cutting, cutting their ice time on, you know, maybe how they're playing that game, but explaining, you know, okay, this is why you're not playing as much. And what would be a reason for you at that age? Like I'm, I'm from, I'm from your, I I think we're cut from the same cloth when it comes to that. I don't, I don't enjoy sitting kids, uh, but what, and I don't do it very often either, but what would be a reason for you to, you to sit some on the bench? What, what would, what would they have, what would you have to see? Well, I mean, I don't do that often, but if I did, it'd be actions within, you know, maybe something undisciplined or losing their emotions. It's one thing I really try to preach to the kids is, you know, it's talkie's such a game of emotions and you got to learn to control those emotions. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of times I'm yelling at my assistant coaches like, hey, we don't say anything to the refs here. I, you know, they'll get yelling and I'll be like, no, no, no. I, if, if anybody's going to talk to the ref, I'll talk to the ref. And I'll have, you know, one of my captain go over and, you know, have a conversation with them. Right. Because I said, we we start yelling at the refs. Well, then that's that's an excuse for the kids. And guess what? They start yelling. Right. So, you know, just that. And that really is can be excuse. And it's, you know. I'm a believer refs make mistakes just like players and coaches do, right? They're not perfect. There's 12, 12 guys on the ice at once. And, you know, if there's just two of them at this level, they're not going to see everything, right? They're going to make mistakes. So, yeah, I try to. Yeah, I know. I, uh, 
Yeah, and and we're so we're, we're so influential, and I shouldn't even say the younger ages, right? I mean, there's uh, I just had on uh, Scott Borak, head coach of uh, Merrimack, right, D one number five team in the nation, and yeah. uh, he told us he just told a story, really awesome story about a guy that was sitting on his bench that that had a letter on. I mean, not a player that could get a regular shift, but had 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 won a won a letter just from the way that they developed the program there, and. And he came into his room between the second and third period, and the coach thought that maybe he was going to be complaining about ice time in this big game or whatever. And, yeah. and he just and he said, "Hey, coach, I mean, your 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 energy is pretty negative right now. You know, I think you got to tone it down. It's rubbing off on the guys. You know, like yeah. yelling at the ref and doing whatever." And yeah. uh, so, I mean, it, it means it's totally influential everywhere, right? So, I mean, good for good on you to recognize it because boys, the, the the players just soak that thing up, and then they feel entitled to to start yelling and. And if there's anything wrong with our sport, I think is that how entitled people feel that they should that they can yell at the ref, <laughs> you know, yeah. whether it be parents, players, or coaches, right? Like, yeah. um, I was just sitting at a game the other day. I forget where it was, and it was a BC Junior game, and uh, and the crowd started yelling the you like the you suck chant, right? Or ref, you suck, right? And uh, yeah. and and there was like eight nine year olds. They were yelling. They thought it was hilarious, and I've never really thought of it before, honestly, because I've heard that lots, right? And I'm like this is so strange that this is like allowed, you know, and this is, you know what I mean? That a, a, a group of adults and kids are screaming at like a 20 something year old person that they suck. Right. And it's like yeah. totally normal. <laughs> Isn't that yeah. strange? Yeah. No, I, me- I remember as a kid, I was, um, I was probably maybe 12, 13. And back when I played in, in Calhoun, we played like PVD level. Right. That's was like the lowest level back then. Um, and I was one of the obviously stronger players on the team, but you know, you're always getting hacked, tripped, whatever. You learn to deal with it, right? Um, that's part of it. Um, but there was this one game I was just like, you know, the ref wasn't calling anything. And finally, I, I don't know, I just lost it. And I ended up shooting a puck at the ref. My dad saw it. Oh, and that was uh, the next day I was, he had me signed up for uh, refing school. He's like, you're refing now. So now I'm like 12, 13, and I'm refing like old timer games, and I'm getting yelled at, right, by these guys. And it's like, yeah, it, it taught me a pretty good lesson. Like, hey, yeah, you better respect the refs. <laughs> <laughs> good for you. That's a great move yeah. by your dad. But yeah, getting back though to the um, to the sitting of the kids. Like, I mean, because I, I I don't know. I'm I'm working as a mental performance coach in the BCHL and with other uh, teams around around North America and with individual players. And and a lot of these players nowadays are like super scared to make a mistake, you know, like, I guess, I mean, I suppose we were back in the day too, cause like mistakes are really punished. And it's one of the things that I try not to do, or I, I think I never do as a coach is punish like a mistake. I mean, an effort, something yeah. you're trying to do something right. you want that, you want that player to go out there and, and, and not feel nervous, right. To, you know, trying to, trying to be a hockey player. There's no fun being nervous trying to do that, but I will like, I, I personally will like lack of effort for me is a huge thing, right? Like if mm-hmm. I have to continuously ask you to work hard, then you're just not going to play. You know, yeah, like that's yeah. kind of a, a non-negotiable for me. And the other one would be, like you said, respect, like lack of discipline would, would, would be would be a, a thing. And then for me, the third one is like, oh, depends on the age group, but like you 13, you 15, like if, if there's a route or if there's an assignment that you're supposed to do and you continuously not do it, like I, I just can't put the player out there. I mean, they have to be able to adapt and listen to that scenario. So yeah, um, it's never a skill thing for me. And it's, and it's, uh, you know, it's never a mistake thing. It's usually about a being able to listen thing or, uh, or a compete thing. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I ne- I've never set a player for mistake. You know, I tell all my players, hey, this is a game of mistakes. The, the other team's going to make mistakes as well. I mean, even at the NHL top level, there's mistakes being made, you know. But it's it's what you do to react after that mistake, you know. Um, so, you know, something like that, I don't, you know, I'm not going to sit a kid for that. It's more, you know, discipline and con- controlling the emotions, Um yeah, good for you. Yeah, I love you. I love your statement there. What it's what you do after the mistake. Like that's totally a narrative for me. Like yeah. if if players start to recognize that it's totally not about the mistake, but the story they're telling themselves is how they respond after it. Like how do I show up? What type of player am I after uh, this goes wrong? Like it, it changes the wiring, you know, on the mistake itself. It's like the opportunity comes after the mistake, right? Like the mistake yeah. is nothing, but it's like the opportunity now is how do I show up? in this game for my teammates, you know, for my coach, for myself. And I, I love that you said that because I think that really can be inspiring for them. And yeah, I mean, as creative the game is nowadays too, right? Like I really don't stress a lot. It, it, what I started with kids was just teaching the game defensively, right? It's that hey, you can, you can create great, great offensive opportunities out of, out of good defense. So really the only kind of structure part of it is the defensive game offensively, you just show them, a few, you know, different scenarios and, and, and things to to try in different situations. But, you know, I basically let them do what they want, be creative with it, right? That's the game now, days. And, you know, even you look back with Gretzky back in the day, how creative he was, you know, just yeah. doing things that we'd never saw before. Um, and now we see, you know, this day and age with some of these things these young kids can do nowadays. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I'm a big believer of that. That's a, that's a good part of the game. It makes it exciting. Um, you know, seeing, seeing creative stuff happen on the ice that you and I would never dreamed of <laughs> trying. Yeah, no, exactly. I couldn't agree more. I mean, from a coaching standpoint, that's how I try to approach it too, is more concept based as opposed to systems, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, like offensively, you're trying to create two on ones or you're trying to create space for somebody else or you're trying to find that that empty space. Right. Like, how do you do that? What's the what's the concept behind creating those opportunities? And and I think as a coach, you, you can definitely encourage that. You know, I mean, for instance, how active defensemen are now on the blue line. Right. Like in our day, they just pretty much stood there. Right. They weren't able to go anywhere. And now they're super active in the uh, in the ozone. Right. They can leave the line. They can walk the line. They can come down the middle. You can do the high scissor play. And so just exposing players to like, what that looks like and what the options are and then allow them to be creative within those concepts, I think, is super important. Um, because, yeah, I think gone are the days or for the most part, gone are the days of, of how we were coached, which is generally probably pretty strict systems in you know, almost all areas of the ice. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a, that's a big thing. It's what I tell kids now, and even my assistant coaches, you know, part of that is, is not only teaching the team, but, but having, having the coaches all on the, on the, you know, all in the same boat really on, on what you're trying to teach and stress. And, you know, I tell kids now it's, you know, there's not three forwards, two D it's, it's five offense, five defense. Um, right. And if my defense can go, I want you to go. I want you, you know, because the game is, you know, around offense a lot. So, and it, it's harder to create now as well. I think then, you know, you got to work a lot harder and you need your, your defenseman involved. Um, to create offense. I want to take a short break from my conversation with Frank to thank you, as always, but 
especially right now because we are heading into a new calendar year. <clears throat> 2022 is about to close and 2023 will represent season three of the Up My Hockey podcast. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for everyone who's listened, everyone who's downloaded, everyone who has subscribed, everyone who has taken the time to let me know what the conversations mean to them or how they've used them or how it's helped. And uh, yeah, I'm grateful for every one of my listeners. I'm grateful for everyone who uh, chooses to spend time with me and my guest on a weekly basis. And uh, and yeah, like I've, I've said here in the last month or so, I'm definitely looking to double down on the podcast and to make sure that I have an episode weekly and to make sure I keep providing uh, fantastic guests with uh, with great storylines. And, and that's what you can expect from me in 2023, uh, more of the same on a consistent basis. And uh, thank you for uh, for being here. And thank you for taking the time to write the reviews as well. I mean, I shouldn't I always say that, and uh, sometimes you guys listen, and sometimes you don't. But uh, but I know, like there is, for instance, there's 52 ratings on, up. I mean, on uh, Apple Podcasts right now. A lot of them you can't review on, but Apple is where most of you are listening from, and most listeners listen from. About 50% of my of my audience is on an Apple device, <laughs> and um, and there's 52 ratings to date which I'm grateful for every single one of them, but it's crazy when I think about what the overall download stats are. And the overall download stats are like over 40,000 at this point. Um, so as far as from a percentage standpoint, um, you know, it's obviously not a huge chunk and it really does not take any time at all. If you just go to the podcast on your device on iTunes and you press review and you can press five stars and you can just give a thumbs up if you want is really all you have to do. It can be that quick and it can be that easy. So yeah, I mean, if you are uh, if you are one of the people that haven't uh, reviewed yet, or even if you did and it was a couple of years ago and you want to put another one on there, I believe you're allowed to do that. So uh, it definitely helps. It definitely lets me know that you guys uh, are listening to this and that you guys uh, care and want to give back and want to help spread uh, spread the word about the podcast and keep moving up the charts. I'm actually back into the top uh, 100 in ca- in Canada for for podcasts and and elsewhere in uh, in the world as far as the the charts are concerned at the peak the podcast was at hit number 24 in Canada which is I'm quite proud of and quite impressive to be honest um, considering that there's zero distribution from media channels and zero money spent on on advertising and and it's just uh, me in my office and producing these things so that was pretty cool and we're back into the top 100 now with being consistent and with with you all helping uh, by by downloading and keeping the keeping listening to the uh, to the pod so we're ho- hopefully going to keep climbing the charts, but it also help matters if you guys uh, do leave the reviews and if you help position the podcast so new listeners can find it. Uh, and that's what the po- that's what the reviews do, and that's what the the downloads do. Is that the whatever you're listening to it on, it recognizes that hey, this is getting a lot a uh, lot more hits or a lot more likes or a lot more reviews. People are listening and now; they're they're going to show it to other people who are interested in hockey. So. Thanks again. Thank you for being here. Uh, I really appreciate it. 2023 uh, is going to be fantastic. And, uh, and I look forward to providing some, some more great content for you guys. Now back to the episode with Frank. Man. You mentioned Callahoo, so we should actually start there just with your own story. We haven't really even touched on, on you yet. But Callahoo, Alberta, I've never been. Uh, just read in the bio there, it was a super small town and essentially you know, one rank, I mean, to- totally yeah. sounds Canadiana, right? Like <laughs> how, how a small town like that would you, how, first of all, how big is Callahoo and, and, and how did you guys have your own rank? Um, so it was a town about 75 people. Um, 
which they don't call a town they call it a hamlet <laughs> that's the name but yeah um yeah no i i grew up there um you know all my buddies were from live there obviously we had enough each year for for a hockey team and baseball team and that's that's what we did we had a we had a rink there which you know we're in a town like that we received government grants to keep the rink up and running and basically a small town like that like we had the keys to the place so you know i remember times at 12 at midnight one two in the morning you know we're out there playing and uh, we would scrounge off you know equipment laying around the rink for someone to be goalie and I, I remember as a kid i was playing goalie we didn't have a, a goalie helmet and i'm wearing a like a back catcher's mask you know thinking about it back now like geez we're crazy right a big opening through the eyes and um but we had fun i mean it was um you know we'd be out there for hours and hours and I, that's one part i see now with kids these days it's like every time they're on the ice it's they're being told what to do Right. And they don't have that time on just just being a kid and being creative. Um, right. It's now I don't know how it is in your area, but our area, you know, at, at four hundred dollars an hour for ice time um, and not, you know, only three rinks in this area. Right. You want to take a, a, a advantage of that as much as you can to, to get the most out of those practices. Um you know, we don't have the luxury outdoor rinks here where, you know, kids can just go out and, and be creative. And I remember as a kid that's, you'd play against all different ages and you just, you just figured it out. Um, and, you know, that's, that's where you kind of hone the, honed your skills in and, and learned to, to make it work as a, as a smaller guy on the ice. Yeah. Yeah. No, great point. And I've touched on that lots of times and I try, I try my best I try my best with my own programming is to allow that space. Right. And with my kids for sure is, is, yeah. is, yeah. Because you're just playing right. Like, and, and I, and I don't want it every time that there's a coach with a whistle in their mouth telling them what to do. And actually I, I just sent out my spring schedule for, uh, for, for this spring coming up and I have some tryouts coming up here over the break and, and there's a day dedicated uh, a three on three scrimmage day. That's like, all I do is just stand there and just make sure nobody gets hurt and like, you yeah. don't let them play, you know, yeah. um, because they don't do that on their own. Right. And there's not really an opportunity to do that. And everyone's so busy and doing stuff. You just don't go to the pond like we used to and just go have a game pickup. So yeah. I'd really do try and incorporate that because one, that's where the kids get passionate. I think that's where you grow the love of it, you know, and, and it can't just be all serious all the time. So uh, yeah. how, how influential do you think that like, was that like the most influential thing? Like just having that access to that rink, do you think? And just your, your buddies and being able to go out there as much as you want. Yeah, I mean that was that was huge. Like, we, you know, not only that, my dad made me an outdoor rink. So if I wasn't skating down at the rink, I was skating outside. So yeah. it was on the ice every day, right? And just just that amount of ice time and and working on the game, no matter what you're doing, right? It's just yeah. it's going to help evolve the game. And in our town too, we have, um, you know, the coaching was good. It was a, it was a passionate. It's a passionate town for sports. Um, Craig Berube, who coaches the St. Louis Blues, you know, like half the town is Berube's. <laughs> it was either Berube's or Quintel's. So, um, but, you know, even all his family were, you know, he had a lot of uncles and they were all involved in sports, all coached and, you know, um, just kind of from that background of just, the, the, you know, the work ethic and, 
you know, not backing down and all that, you know, learning all that as, as a kid. And I remember Craig Ruby's uh, uncle, Emil, he's, he's kind of like the, he was like the godfather of our town, really supported everything. He owned, he was part, you know, all the brothers, they owned the meat shop there. So, you know, he was the one that always donated everything. And um, actually, I, I remember when I first went to Fernie and I made the team, um, I was, I called my dad. I'm like, Hey, I won't, I'm not going to stay here. I'm, I'm coming home. I was just homesick because I went there not even thinking I was going to make the team. I just jumped in the car with my buddy who was going to the tryouts. And after the, after that Sunday that, you know, coach said, okay, this, uh, you made the team. You're going home with this family. And my buddy didn't, that came, he didn't make it. So he went home. So there I'm, you know, I got a pair of underwear and a socks and a pair of shorts and going to start in school the next day. So I called him after the first week. I said, I'm coming home. And then uh, he had Emil call me, which was Craig Ruby's cousin. And Emil was just talking. We had a good conversation. He was like, you know, you, you should really stick it out if this is what you want to do. And he's like, I'll tell you what. He's like, uh, this month, um, or he's for the, he said, for the season, I'll give you, I think it was back then, 20 bucks a goal, 20 bucks assist. So the first month, <laughs> right, I get a, a, a letter in the mail. It's like 300 bucks cash in there. 15 16 years old like this is great so a couple, couple first two months went by and then he called me he's like um he's like i'm gonna have to knock that now we're gonna go to ten dollars a goal assist <laughs> yeah that's awesome yeah, yeah. well what a good way so that uh well what a great supporter right i mean what a what a great oh, yeah. so he, he the whole town there. the whole town was you know it was it was a family right it was it was everyone together and it's you know, for a town of 75 people and Craig Brewery to make it. And then I, you know, I made it. And there's actually an, another uh, player that's playing in Chicago now uh, from our town, uh, Ian Mitchell, who's with the Blackhawks. Yeah. So it's a pretty good ratio for a town of 75 people. <laughs> no kidding, man. That's awesome. Yeah. And what about, so uh, what about as far as like the, the length of season. So like, when did the ice go in or when did it come out? Cause like you said, there was a baseball there too. And I think back, you know, back when we were growing up, there was definitely not a full-time sport. I mean, hockey, which, which it seems like it's turning into nowadays. Like when, when would you, when would you be on the ice all that time? And when would you not be on the ice? Oh, I can't remember when we started back then, but I would guess probably September, I'm assuming. And then would go to May, April. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, but, you know, and then we would, you know, once spring came, we started to um, play fastball. Um, but there were times, you know, they'd take the ice out where we'd, all of us buddies still go down there and still play ball hockey. Or now once I got older, right, because I saw Craig Berube was shooting pucks during the summer down there all the time, right, just in his running shoes and his gloves and his stick. Well, then, you know, then I started doing that. And, you know, then, then became ritual like okay now i'm doing that every day for two three hours a day and just shooting shooting and um i really noticed a difference um you know at that point i was playing in saskatoon and i remember the the summer before i'd scored the 83 like i was religious you know my my gym routine you know Baruby started it taking me to panthers gym which was down in edmonton where he was training a lot of the a lot of the NHL guys were training there and um, with Daryl Duke. And then right after that, I would come and straight to the rink and shoot for two hours. And, you know, it was just every day. And I just, 
my shot was that was probably the best my shot had ever been. I mean, I could put the puck wherever I wanted. Um, and that was just from the continuous shooting. And I even, it, it's funny, I played with Ovi in, in Moscow. Um, I went over there and that was the year he got drafted. And I saw him after practice, like he was out there an hour shooting, shooting, shooting. Guys were already at the gym, showered and gone. And he's still on the ice. And then he come off the ice after, you know, and I would, I was kind of like that when I was younger as well. But at that point, I'm 30. I'm like, man, I'll get my 20 minutes shooting in. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> but he'd be out there an hour and then, uh, you know, then at, into the gym after that. And it's just, you know, that continuous repetition. But I loved it. It was a passion, right? And that's one thing I think I notice with kids, with coach, and even my own kids. It's, um, I think that passion's got to come from within. Right. And if they have that passion and that drive and that fire, you know, anything is possible. Um, right. But yeah, it, it really cool. comes. Yeah. I love that story. So that was. Uh, so, again, like the, the influence, though, right, like of having somebody. Well, one of the things I always talk about is, you know, like your, your personal standards when I'm working with whoever it is that I'm working with. Right. Like where. Where do you need to grow, right? Where do you need to elevate that standard or that personal expectation? And, and a lot of times your environment is so influential on that because, you know, there, there's one slide I have on this one presentation. You know, there's there's like this dog, like it's essentially like a lap dog, like an L.A. lap dog. And then there you have like the Huskies up up in Alaska, right? And the L.A. lap dog might think he had a really hard day because he went for a little trot down by the beach for 20 minutes. And, you know, he's exhausted, right? It was 30 yeah. degrees out and holy smokes, that's <laughs> tough. And then you have the then you have the sled dogs up in Alaska, right? That 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 have to catch their own food and you know they travel all these miles and i mean and so i'm uh, my my point is is right your perspective totally matters right like you might think you're working hard but you know and until you until you be around a berube who's shooting pucks there for three hours i mean every day you're like holy well holy shit i mean i guess that's an option right maybe that's something that i could do right and then so then you grow your own personal standard but what that looks like so um I think that's amazing that you were able to see that. And then one that you, not only you saw it, then you chose to adopt it. And then you also saw the benefits of it. Like go figure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was even uh, when, when I started going for Ruby down to Panthers gym, Daryl Duke was our trainer then who then eventually became, you know, the Oilers um, athletic trainer. But I remember my first summer I went with them. They were, they were hard workouts, you know, uh, boxing was just a part of it. Right. We did that. I mean, obviously I did that um, not for my game, but, you know, um, you know, like Daryl Duke used to say, like, yeah, I know you're, you know, you're a scorer, not a fighter, but we need to work on this so you can defend yourself. Right. So we did boxing every day. But the hard part was that was the running and the stairs. So we would go downtown Edmonton because the gym was close where they have real long stairs along the river walk there. Um and we were running those. I remember the first summer, I mean, they were so hard. I threw up like almost every week, uh, all summer. And then the next year it was like, man, I didn't, I maybe threw up once. Right. Um, but Daryl always pushed us and his, you know, his saying or his motto was, you know, mind over matter. It's like your mind's trying to tell your body it's tired. You get, you know, control your mind. Right. So just the summers and summers of training with that, and learning that, um, you know, he, he was, you know, obviously a big part. And then not only that, we had other guys there, like tons of guys, like, you know, Ray Whitney was down there, Tyson Nash, uh, Zach Boyer, 
uh, Jerome McGinley was down there at times. I mean, there were just all kinds of guys, all the Oilers guys, right? So when everyone's there together, you're just, you're pushing each other as well, right? Um, so it was, it was a, I, I really noticed that, that year that I scored 83, that year, just that summer. Yeah, I was already doing it, I think, two or three summers with Dookie. And then that summer, I really noticed, like, I made a a big step. You know, yeah. I wasn't, uh, you know, always the back of the pack or the middle of the pack. Now it was more the front of the pack. And, you know, I'm like, okay, now. And when you can see that you know, the work you're putting in to start paying off, that's where some of the confidence comes from, right? Um, you can build that confidence by by your work ethic and your practicing. Yeah. 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 And it gets harder, right? I mean, that's, that's the one thing is the younger levels, which I think is probably one of the reasons why I love coaching the younger levels so much is like the, the development curve is just like so steep, right? Like you can give them something and they just get better, right? Right in front of your eyes, you can actually see kids get better, you know? And then obviously like the longer you get in the journey and you're talking now, like your fourth year in the WHL, it's harder to to make those gains, you know, like it's harder, Mm -hmm. it's harder to see improvement, but when you do, um, it definitely pays off. I mean, Brad Larson, a previous guest, your head coach of the of the Columbus Blue Jackets, now he calls it the last seven percent, right? Like the guys at his level are trying to get to that last seven percent, you know. And yeah. and each percent that they get is like a pretty monumental gain, right? But it's so damn hard to get it at that level. And and uh, and I think you know you're 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 talking about that, right? And that's where that passion and that continuous dedication uh, and commitment to to getting better. Right. And, and yes. you, you saw that spike there. Let's talk about that 83 goals. I mean, I had, I had diesel on, uh, so Frankie, Frankie and, and Mark Dial were, were line mates in, in Saskatoon. So I'll maybe set this up. I don't know for how many years, I think the last two years for sure. I think Mark was there with you. Right. Isn't that, isn't that accurate? Yeah. Marky was there. Uh, DL was there three years with me. Wilm, who was our other line mate was four yeah. years. Right. Um, yeah. And then my old roommate, Belak, he would have been with us three years. Gotcha. So, you know. So, yeah. Uh, so, so, Mark Dayell and Frank Will, I mean, uh, Clark Will and and uh, and Frankie Bannon were, were aligned there. And then that, that one year in particular, um, I mean, didn't didn't Clarkie get 52? Yeah. He was, I think, 49, 50. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I'd always played with Clarkie on a line all four years. Clarkie used to or he was a center. Um, and then Diesel, I played with him, you know, for sure all the year, the last year and the second year or our second last year, majority of that we, we, we played together. Um, yeah. And, you know, all those guys that I mentioned all, you know, were a huge part in, in, in me scoring 83. Um, DL was just, he was an incredible passer and he scored 60 himself. Um, but I just knew as soon as he got the puck, you know, he was going to, he was going to find me. I was like, I, I just got to get open and shoot it. <laughs> right. Um, it, it was just, it was just perfect ingredients for a line with Wilm who, you know, he was, he was, he did a lot of the dirty work, obviously in the corners rough and he could score as well and had good hands could make plays. Um, and then, then even having Belak on the backside, right. Although, you know, um, Skill-wise, that wasn't, you know, his attribute. But um, the presence he brought with his size, you know, we, we lived together, so we were almost pretty much like brothers, right? So 
anyone was taking runs at me, right? It's um, you got the, the toughest guy in the league backing you. It bought me a lot of space. It buy me an extra three feet of space, which that extra three feet that adds up at the end of the year. Um, so, you know, even though he wasn't the DL who was setting me up or Wilm set me up or doing the work for those 83, um, he was definitely a part of that as well. Right. right? Uh, it, you know, that extra three feet of space he bought or, 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 uh, you know, the opposition thinking twice of, uh, running because i remember that season there was i can't remember the guy from pa it was their tough guy took a pretty good run at me and belak was right in there and uh the, the rest of the year we played PA, pa i think the guy was scared to come <laughs> come and hit me i would be too if i had uh belak on my uh on my heels chasing me around he was right. a, he was a tough customer but a great person but yeah no it was um it was just we, we you know all all three of us as a line just got off to a real hot, hot start and just, just continued it. And we just kept snowballing and building and building. It was like, I remember four games, you know, you're sitting there in the national anthem and, you know, you're mentally going through everything in your head as the, as the anthems, you know, being saying. And um, I, re- I remember just thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to score this game. I had that much confidence. I just don't know when. And sometimes we, you know, we'd score first shift. Um, yeah, and I just yeah, I was just got off to to a, a, a great start and um, just kept snowballing from there. So it was, it was obviously a fun year with you know I had eighty and DL had sixty and Wilma had fifty. That's that's a lot of goals on one line. Oh, it's crazy! <clears throat> it's actually crazy. And and uh, I mean, I was I was in the WHL at that time too, so we saw what you guys were doing though over there in the east and it was like holy smokes and i remember talking to diesel because he was saying like who was your coach at the time uh donnie clark yeah don clark and he, he said like one thing that you guys did have um which maybe some other guys didn't was just essentially unlimited ice time he's like you'd come to the bench and the coaches would be like no you're staying out or like come off when you want to or like however he would say it but he said it was nuts like you guys just played a ton and you guys had great chemistry and you know just oh, like yeah. i said it was snowballed yeah, well, then the power play too, right? And we we had a hell of a good uh, defenseman too, like Corey Sarich. I remember Sarich; he was the one that assisted my. I think it was the goal when I broke the record of um, Herb Pinder was seventy eight. But you had defense like that, Corey Sarich, Pavel Kriz, which was a Czech player, really good, you know, passer and and playmaker from the backside. Um, Chad Allen, or I think uh, yeah, Allie was with us. Uh, which Ali was a really good player. And um, yeah. And then even, you know, Paul Butchkowski, which Butch, um, I think he played a little bit with us, maybe if, if Willie was hurt, but he was another, you know, great player as well. Um, yeah. He had 80 points. I mean, that's the thing with, that's the funny thing with that line is because like Clark, at least at the time, and we didn't play against you much, but like he was a bit of the afterthought. You know, like as far as like who to worry about, you know, but he was really a glue piece for you guys and, and and was really like the toughest nails guy. But it's funny when I look at the stats, like he only had, I shouldn't say only, but he had 83 PIMS that year. You had 116 and Diesel had 122 and Clark was tough, right? Like Clark could throw. He was, he was, he was a yeah. tough guy. And, and ironically, I guess out of the three of you, and I've used that as an example before is like he played, he had the most NHL experience too and the most NHL games after that, you know, the way he fit into the league and was kind of a puzzle piece that, that uh that teams needed so it's uh it was interesting because he was i i think he was 
a little bit underrated playing with you guys who are so flashy, you know what I mean? And, and putting up so big a numbers yet. He, he was obviously doing a job for you guys on that line. Yeah. With, with, with Clarky, I mean, he, he was, I would say more of a complete player than DL and I, I mean, he could, you could play him at any position, you know, he played left, he played wing or, or center. You could rely on him on a defensive face off or a penalty kill or, you know, power play. Um, not only that, he was, he was, he was a tough cookie, great, great teammate. Um, you know, always stuck up for his teammates. So, um, it doesn't surprise me at all to see the pro career he, he ended up having, um, because he, you know, he had, he had a lot of different tools where Gail and I were kind of, um, I, I would, I, guess you'd say like a one-dimensional you know we're just all all offense although you know we we played defense and stuff too but that year it's uh we weren't we weren't in our zone a whole lot <laughs> right so you got drafted by uh by washington in 93 and then uh and then never really got involved with with them like what, what did they not did you not sign with them or, or or what how did that how did that happen for you on a on a on the contract side of things so back then I don't remember exactly how it worked, but I knew uh, after the first year, you didn't have to sign, but I believe they had to make you an offer or something to retain your rights, um, which they didn't. So I became a free agent. And uh, and actually that um, they, after I went to Capitals camp that year, I was drafted. And then the next year I went to New Jersey Devils camp um, just on a tryout. Uh, and that was the year the Devils actually won the cup and the Albany won the uh, Calder Cup. So at that point, I was sort of been 18 or 19, I guess. So was it, that would have been a tough uh, either squad to crack, which, you know, I, I, I lasted a while in the, in the camp and tryout, which was good. Um, you know, not like the typical one. It's one of the first guys group leaving and heading back to junior. But um, it was good, good experience. Um, yeah, and then the next year, I actually went to Chicago Wolves camp after my year junior, uh, which was the IHL then. And they actually made me an offer to stay and play on the team. But it was a two-way deal between between the Wolves, which was the IHL and the ECHL. Um, and I remember actually talking to DL through that, saying, "Hey." You know, because I think he was already signed by the Leafs, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm like thinking of staying here, taking this." And uh, he said, "No." He's like, "Come back to junior." He's like, "He's like, I'll promise we'll 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 light it up. We'll get you something better, right?" Um, so if you you got you basically your center telling you that it was the one that was feeding you the year before to get you fifty, um, right? It's like, okay, um, let's do it. So. They came back and then that uh, we, we got off to that great start and, and all three of us were doing great. Well, Dial, I think Willie had signed with the Flames during that time and then around Christmas um, worked out well because of the free agent and actually the Caps tried to to sign me then. They made me an offer, um, but I was getting other offers at the time and decided to sign with the Ducks. So that's kind of how that worked. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So yeah. kind of. I don't know what you'd say, but I mean, you're looking for work essentially, right? You're get you're going to AHL camps, and you know the the Capitals who drafted you kind of f- would probably feel a little bit overlooked. 
and all of a sudden, you know, that's after after a 50 goal season, by the way, everybody. Like, you know, he's a free agent, 70 goal, I mean 50 goals in 70 games. That's no that's no slouch at all. Uh, but it came back, and then all of a sudden now you're the you're the bright shiny penny that that all these teams are lining up for because you're even producing at a at a higher rate. That must have been a pretty good feel-good moment. Yeah, it was. It was because it's you know, obviously it's your your dream to 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 continue on and then and make it to that next level. And you know, I was I was basically I was running out of time. It was like now or now or never, right? Because um, I'm playing my overage year, and uh, so you know, I didn't know what the what what the plan was for that. So that's um, uh, it, it was it was exciting to you know now find out okay there's teams interested in want you and um you know that that next step is going to happen um so and that's that's the thing with hockey is you never know what everybody's um route is different um sometimes the right place right time you know i even tell kids today it's um uh, derek ryan who played over in europe when uh, he played for in, in the Austrian league, he played for the Hungarian team that I'd played for, um, you know, and he, he was a good junior player. Um, then went played CIA played, uh, U of A. And then after his career there came over to us over in Austria and he had a couple of good seasons there. And then I think it was three years there. Then he went a year in Sweden had a, another good year. And now 30 years old, he signs his first NHL contract and he's, He's playing in the NHL and has been ever since. So, um, you never know what what you know what the path is. is you know, like we'd said earlier, you, you still have that determination and and drive, um, and that never you know never dies away or never goes away. It's um, you know eventually it, it can work out for you. Yeah, I've actually, I actually had Derek on as a guest. I never knew him before. I can't remember. I think I connected with him on Instagram or something. But we had, uh, we had the Chiefs lineage uh, in my favor, I guess. And I reached out and and uh, loved, actually loved hearing his story. Like amazing story, and yeah, one that we celebrated on the on the podcast. A good episode to listen to if if uh, anyone listened hasn't yet. Um, I think we should do Wade. Yeah. I mean, maybe talk about Wade. Because, I mean, if you were his roommate and stuff, and I, I I mean, I just knew him from, you know, being part of that generation, right? Like, I never knew him personally. I never played with him. Uh, has, has since passed on for for those listening who, who don't know. Uh, I don't know. How, how, do we, how do we do Wade justice? You might have heard from everybody that's ever known him that he was, like, just a gentle giant, you know, like, was a super nice, caring guy. Um, and I don't really know much surrounding his his uh, his death, to be honest. You know, mental health is such a, a bigger topic now these days, and people are 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 speaking about it more. Is is there anything that we should chat about when it comes to Wade and and sort of what 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 happened with him? Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was devastating. Um, uh, yeah, it's but when I look back, I remember the f- first time we'd. Uh, that we were going to become roommates and his mom, he came from really good family. Um, you know, really family orientated and, um, was just a, just a great person, but funny, you know, he's always making jokes. And but I remember his mom brought him over to our billets. He was going to move in with me and she, you know, although they lived in North Battleford, which wasn't too far, 
from Saskatoon. She's like, well, you make sure you take care of my Wade. And I'm like looking at him like, uh, I, I, so I said there, I said, well, I'll take care of him off the ice. If he takes care of me on the ice and, um, well, he ended up doing both really. Um, but yeah, just a good person and actually, you know, great human being. When that, when that happened, I'd talked to him a week prior and it was just sounded the same, right? Just happy joking and never knew for a second that, you know, there were any issues going on. And then, uh, and I was, I was actually speaking with him, trying to get convinced him, like, Hey, come play one more year over in Europe with us we'll get you on the, come over and play with us. And, uh, I think at that time, though, he's, he was doing the Battle of the Blades, and um, but yeah, no, we just we as roommates, we we're really close. You know, he'd, he'd come to my hometown, I would go to his place in North Battleford. You know, uh, even during the All Star breaks, he would fly to see me where I was at. You know, um, so it, it was it was really hard. You know, uh, when that happened, just knowing what you know, the, the person he was and, you know, how happy he was and to not know that on the inside, you know, cause he was always cracking jokes. Um, yeah, I'll never forget. He, he invited me out to his cabin place in Saskatchewan, uh, close to North Battleford on the lake. He's like, so me and some buddies from Calhoun headed out there one weekend and he's like, Oh, I got this new boat. He's like, you got to, I want to take you tubing. I'm like, okay, I'd been tubing before, but man, this, I don't know what kind of boat it was, but whole, he took off in that thing. And, and I'm like, man, I got to get off. Like he was pulling me all over the lake, like in the, in the water, the rooster, I guess what they call it was shooting, hit me in the face. Like I couldn't even see, I'm holding on for my life. And I'm thinking, <laughs> man, as, he, as soon as he slows down, I'm going to let go and get off this. But I mean, for 15 minutes straight, I'm white knuckling it. Like, there was no chance. And finally, I flew off, and he comes around, and he's laughing. Oh, was that fun? I'm like, I'm never going on that thing again when you're pulling me. I, said, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Good time. Yeah, he was a, a good man. Yeah. Is there, any, yeah. is there any lesson there at all for anyone listening? Like, I guess you never know, you know, and yeah, I, I just – I don't know. It just ha it happens. Seems to happen too often, and it's usually completely unexpected. You know, I had I had coffee the other day with Ryan Johnson. You know, my first roommate, pro, and and you know, Greg, his, his older brother. No one saw it coming, and you know, obviously left the wake of, you know, tragedy, but behind, you know, and and what a good leader he was, and everything else. And Wade, I heard that too. Like, is there any is there anything like to take away from that as far as from a lesson or anything people sh could do or know? Yeah, you know, I th I think about that now, like, you know, is there, you know, how I, you know, our conversation, you know, um, was it, you know, do you take things for granted? Was there, was there a sign there or, or something to, you know, to do whatever you can to help them out, right? Um, so, you know, I've, I've thought about that a lot after, after it happened and, um, yeah, it's just sometimes you just don't know, but it's, it's you know, let's take a lesson from it is, you know, maybe not taking things for granted as much and, and being more aware of of the situation. But, you know, when I when I look back at it, it's, um, 
I didn't really see any signs there, to be honest, um, yeah. which is kind of the, 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 the tough pill to swallow for me on my end, you know, just losing a, a, a great friend like that. Um, that, you know, as, as I said, like, I had a lot of respect for him that, you know, the year I scored 83 and even 50, it was, you know, maybe he maybe only assisted on a few of those, but it's in my mind, he assisted on all of them. Um, just because um, I think people knew how close we were and it was like, I was like his little brother. Right. Um, so when you, when you have that, um, you know, that, that, team camaraderie like that or or you know someone's got your back you know but uh you play with a uh, a little bit more balls and uh a little yeah. more confidence you know you don't you, yeah. you you eliminate that out of your mind um yeah. when you know your, your buddy's got your back and that's kind of one thing i try to teach with the kids too here right it's just you know uh, you know you guys always got to stick together and, and you know play for one another um and have each other's backs right like that's that's an important piece if you want to get to the next levels is just you know that that teammate part right um which was you know us growing up playing juniors and stuff that was uh that was you know that was when we started learning all that um and i, I can even look back playing in calhoun you know i was already learning that because it was the same team every year, but that that's an important, important piece. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Taking care of each other. I love that camaraderie aspect of hockey for sure. And, and maybe just to put a, you know, some closure on, on the Wade thing. I mean, I, I had a friend too, wasn't a, I mean, wasn't a professional hockey player, but tried to take his own life. It was like, I would consider him one of my best friends. And, uh, and I had all this questions, you know, that you, you were asking, right? Like what could I have done or could I, did I miss something? And, and I know the people around, around that. I mean, those are the questions that you ask, but I, I think, you I mean, what, what fortunately he's still here and he's doing fine. But like the, the thing that we kind of came to is that it was the person that's feeling it needs to feel comfortable enough. Cause I'm sure that you would have loved to have had that conversation with Wade, you know, like you would have been there for him, you know, a hundred percent. And, and it's up to the person that's kind of going through it to, to be able to open that door and, and to trust that those around him. And I guess that would be the thing that I would just say, if anyone's having any, any issues with, with anything, right? Like there's someone around you that wants to hear about it. And there's someone around you that, you know, you're not, you're not burdening yeah. anybody. And, and, uh, you know, I think that's just it. And, and, uh, and it's okay to not to be okay. You know, as they're saying now with, uh, with the, with the mental health side of things. So I'm, I'm, I think that like us talking about it, I think the more people that do talk about it, at least it, it, it allows the conversation I think to happen. And I do believe the conversation is, is healing for a lot of people. So, um, I guess that would be my add to that. And, and, uh, if anyone's, else yeah, that's, yet, what, talk. What, yeah, when I think about back on way two, it's, you know, it kind of had that, um, I mean, he had to do it through his career, that tough body armor, right? Where maybe he didn't want to let his guard down, right? Um, and, it would, you know, I wish he would have, right? I wish yeah. he would have uh, opened up because I would have done everything I could to, to help him make sure, you know, yeah. what happened yeah. didn't happen. Because, um, yeah, I mean, he was just, he was just an incredible person uh, on the inside. 
and he was like a big teddy bear. I remember <laughs> living together. We wrestled all the time, and uh, <laughs> and I could I could I could usually do pretty good against him. He wasn't wasn't a strong wrestler, but I, in no means would I ever d dare to try and drop the gloves with him uh, because his back muscles, man, was he strong? And he, when he got throwing, oh, yeah, I've. Uh, yeah, I saw him. Uh, he did. He he could do some damage. That's for sure. Um, yeah, for sure. There was. There, I remember there was a game in Regina we played. It was an exhibition game, and I got kicked out of the game. I can't remember what. Maybe it was fighting or something. But I'm in the locker room, and about five minutes later, he comes walking in. And he's got blood all over him. I'm like, oh my god, my like, what? Did you cut yourself? Like, what happened? He's like, no, it was the other guy. I'm like, oh jeez. <laughs> Take another quick break from my conversation with Frank. Just to remind you of what Up My Hockey is uh, on the other side of this podcast. So Up My Hockey is obviously this podcast with Jason Padone, but Up My Hockey is also uh, a service, uh, a service to teams or a service to players uh, for mental performance and for the mindset side of the game. I've developed a program called the Peak Potential Hockey Project. It's a four-week program, four different mindset themes that are included in that, and, and uh, individual players can take that course with me they can take it by themselves or they can take it mentored with me uh, privately. Uh, so I have my mentored mission. I also have my guided mission, which is uh, a group of athletes taking the program together. Uh, and also, like I said, the solo mission where you just purchase a program and take it by yourself. Uh, there is uh, that way to work with me. I also have group calls, group coaching calls uh, with a set of athletes that are... Um, you know, want to take their game to the next level and have big goals and have big dreams and re understand that mindset is a big portion of that and uh, and want to be around like-minded players uh, with the support of a coach like me that's going to keep holding them accountable to what they want, keep giving them new ideas and helping them fight through challenges and helping them celebrate uh, their successes. Uh, there's also uh, my private clients that uh, that I'm super grateful for and that I've been working with, some of which for now two or three years. Uh, and have helped them climb the ladder and getting their scholarships and, and getting positions on all-star teams and, and making it to the BCHL and and, um, and some guys approaching pro ranks. So it's a lot lot of fun right now uh, being, being a part of Up My Hockey. And if you are a player who thinks that they should work on their mindset, or maybe you're somebody who doesn't really know what that means but understands that, wow, uh, this probably is something that I should be looking at even though I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong or broken with me. Uh, and that is really the message of Up My Hockey. It's not about being broken or needing to be fixed. It's about how do you become your best. How do you become your best, which is why I called it peak potential. How do you get what you want? How do you get where you want to go? And when you start asking those questions and you start listening to the answers, you're going to find out that, you know what, you need to be really curious about your development. You need to understand that you are better with others around you, you are better with a team, and you are better when you keep turning over those rocks to see what's underneath. And if you have not looked at mindset as a way to grow and as a way to gain a competitive advantage, uh, and you have big goals and you have big dreams, and you're honestly uh, missing out. So... Yes, if you're a player, by all means, uh, hook me up. Check out when the next Peak Potential Project starts. Uh, ask me a question if you want. I'm available online through my, through my website. If you are a hockey coach or a manager, whether it's of a minor hockey team uh, at a AAA level or a AA level, 
or whether you're part of an academy or whether you're part of a prep school or whether you're a manager somewhere of a junior team and you know that your players will benefit, uh, one, you are right, and two, I can potentially help. So 2023 is going to be crazy. Uh, next season is already looking busy, but I would love to support you and your team. And if you want to reach out and see what that might look like, by all means, please do. Uh, most of everything is available at upmyhockey.com for the mindset portion. And obviously, Up My Hockey is also um, an on-ice skill development uh, program where I have things running. So if you're local to the Okanagan area, you can definitely check out uh, upmyhockey.com to see what I have on as far as spring camps or spring programs or summer programs or skill sessions throughout the year. So thank you again. Uh, upmyhockey.com there's also the Facebook group upmyhockey parent group there's also the YouTube channel where you can watch this interview if you want Uh, that's upmyhockey as well and I'm also at Jason Padola on Instagram for anyone who wants to follow me on social All right, now back to the interview with Frank Banna Let's talk about you. You're you're one of those guys that I've talked about, and I never saw. I never really saw you play as a pro, Frankie. So I can't really talk. I mean, obviously, we, we've we've covered your your ability to score, though, at the junior level. You know, 19, 20 years old, you scored 133 goals. Um, usually, that translates to the pro level, and it did for you at the AHL, and it also did for you like the one year. It seems like you got a little bit of a crack uh, with the Ducks. So I mean, 97, 98, you had 21. 21 games played, you scored nine goals. I did a little bit of math before we came on here. Um, in an 82-game season, that the, which the NHL is, that's a 34-goal season. And, uh, and yeah, it seems like from that point, like you never really – I mean, you had three games in Anaheim the next year and five games like three years later in, in, in Phoenix, but, you know, never really had a shot after that. Like what – can you talk to me about that run there where you, where you had the nine goals in 21 games and, and what it was like, and then also like when they sent you down and sort of what the message was at that point. Yeah, I think, um, you know, my, when I went to Baltimore after my year in, in Saskatoon, um, I ended up ripping my pubic or chipping my pubic bone actually where your stomach and groin muscle join. Um, and at, at that point, right, so you signed your first NHL contract. And, and as I was saying before, that work that I was putting in in the summers and, and training and shooting, it's like, right, it's it's paying off. So uh, when I had that injury in my mind, you know, when I look back on it now, it was, you know, why you say train, not train harder, train smarter. But uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to do even more. Right. So now I'm at the gym six hours a day. Right. I'm there all and and I'm like, well, you know, it's it's a stomach well. I gotta do more more sit-ups and you know, and I was just training through that summer and running and everything and it and never got better, it actually got worse. So um my first two years were pretty tough because I didn't you know, I ended up having surgery and I was I didn't start the season um my first year with Anaheim till after till like Christmas because uh, I had surgery and then the next year I uh, missed uh, training camp again and didn't start you know until right before Christmas and then got called up at the uh, after Christmas and that's where I finished well with nine goals in the in the last twenty games so um, you know looking back on it um, you know if I would have came straight from junior. You know, healthy after that year, I think I would have had a better, 
it would have worked out better no matter where I ended up, if it was the minors or, or made and on. But, the, you know, when you miss some of that time off the two years, I think it, it, it takes a lot, a lot away. Um, cause those are important years of, of developing and learning the pro game. And, um, so that was a struggle, but, you know, I was able to get up there at the end and, and do well. I mean, I was playing with Matt Cullen, which Maddie was very similar to DL, you know, could just find you. So for me, that was, I was, I was good at that. I was good at getting, getting open and, and shooting a puck. That's what I love to do. Um, and then, you know, I, I did finished well and I thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm finally hundred percent healthy here going into training camp the third year, which was the first training camp I was going to be able to attend, you know, with the ducks and, um, they brought a new coach in Craig Hardsburg from the year before, which was more of a defensive mind coach. Um, and I did well in, in the preseason, I thought, um, but as you know, Hartsey said, he's like, look, he's like, I got my two guys here to, to score my goals. I need that, you know, I need guys to focus around the defensive part of the game. Um, you know, I'll, I'll rely on my, these two guys to, to get us the goals. And, um, you know, I was, I would say if that was a weakness in my game would have been in the de- defensive part. Right. Um, because as I said, in, in my last year junior, we didn't play a lot in our own zone. Uh, and then missing those, you know, two years, bits and pieces of the first two years of pro um, made it tough. And, and then, you know, I got, um, even though I got sent down, you know, I was still in, still positive and, and like, you know, I'm going to do anything I can to get back up and continue to work and cause I'm finally healthy and um, got sent down in the first week or whatever. I got knocked out, out cold, out cold concussion, you know, um, woke up in the, in the, in the training room, my tooth was gone. I had you know, stitches in the back of my head, my lip. I got, I got rocked pretty good. And, and looking back at it now, like I played the next week, right. Which, you know, it was, I probably wasn't ready. Um, so, you know, it was, it was, um, I was facing some adversity, right. Um, it was, it was tough. And that was kind of my decision when, you know, after Anaheim, when uh, I looked to went to go over to Finland, because I had some options to stay here. But you know, it's like I, I want to try this, see it, and, and that's where I fell and found that passion for the game again, because it was, you know, over there you're going twice a day, you know, training camps are a month long. It's um, you better have passion for the game or, or, uh, it's going to be a long year there. Cause it's, it's nonstop. It's hard training, but I loved it. Uh, I love the Finnish people. They're very, uh, hardworking people, you know, uh, very unselfish players. And, and, uh, you know, I found the love for the game again then. Um, cause those first, you know, four years with Anaheim was, it was, it was a struggle with the injuries and, and everything, um, made it tough. Can you talk about the Finnish development model? Because, I mean, they're a, they're a country that completely fascinates me. You know, I think it's like five or six million people there, and they compete on the world stage, and they continue to produce, you know, player after player after player. It's pretty it's pretty astounding, to be quite frank. And, and, uh, and I've heard that they do do things there a little bit different just with their, like their minor hockey development system. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that because I mean, it's been a while since, since you've been over there, but uh, do you remember anything different about like the kids growing up or even, you I mean, you mentioned what the pro game looked like over there, but can you talk about what that hockey experience was like? 
Yeah, I mean, it's um, that's what I see compared to here to all of Europe. You know, growing up in a town of 75 people, right? Um, I don't even think we had to pay fees, to be honest. I remember raising money to, 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 you know, selling chocolates door to door to, to pay for a tournament to go do our tracksuit. Um, we're over here, right? As I tell kids nowadays, I'm like, listen, if the game was this expensive when I was growing up, you know, I would have never been able to play. So you better be thankful and grateful to your, your parents and, and grandparents and everyone that helps out because it is a big commitment, not only time-wise, financially-wise. Um, but if we get back to, like, Europe and stuff, um, you know, even even Hungary, and my buddy's running the Hungarian National Program, but they get a lot of funding from the government, right? So it's um, these kids can get on the ice all the time. It's not costing them an arm and leg. Uh, so you're getting more more people involved, and they're getting more more ice time than probably the kids are over here. Um, and not only that, it's over there, they, the way they run it is um, the coaches all stay within that age group they're coaching. They don't, they don't move up with the kids. So, you know, for example, like a might level, it might take you five, 10 years to master that level where, you know, when I started coaching, right, I, I'd always tell parents, you just because I played the game 20 years doesn't make, mean that makes me a good coach, right? It's as a coach, you gotta, you gotta keep learning and evolving and you learn, you know, little things and what works, what doesn't. Um, but over there, right. It's those, those, some of those coaches are 20 years at the might level, 20. Yeah. Um, and then it goes level by level. Um, and just, just the practices. I mean, they, they practice so hard. Um, one thing that I liked there was, you know, because you are practicing so much and what would tend to be back. I don't think it's like that now, but back in our era, right. When you practice, you didn't have so much time to practice on your individual skills and get that up, you know, keep that sharp or, or improving that. Right. It was, um, you did that on your own time, right. Because our practices were because of all the travel and everything here in the program. Um, you know, you may be working on, you know, team structured stuff for systems or whatever power play or, you know, your four check or, um, and back, back then you know it was um the the skills part of it maybe was forgotten about but over in, in finland like that was that was part of um you know there was at least a, a practice you know especially when we're doing two a day one would be specified on the skills part of it so i actually to be honest i think my game improved more in one season there than it did four years over here between the american league and and the nhl Although, you know, I was, I was injured at the time, but I just noticed, um, you know, and was that improvement because of that passion I found again and that, you know, giving it back, I'm not sure, but I just, I know like my game really came, uh, took it, I, it came to the next level after just one season there. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, I remember the first time I went over there, my first practice, I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm like, can I even play in this league? Like they practice so hard. It was like a game, and I'm like, man, these guys are going 100 miles an hour, and they 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 play, you know, you you doing physical drills, they're playing tough, right? It's they're they're all out, and then the game would come and be like, man, we're are these guys that were in practice, right? We're in Canada, we're the opposite. It's like, yeah, well, you know, we'll practice, but you know, once that game card 
comes right it's freaking everything all out um where i would i mean that kind of surprised me and shocked me the way practices were like it was they were intense and guys went hard like that's they pushed themselves so um yeah and, and it's like as you say a country of five million people you see where their national team's at right um you know it's just amazing part of that is the work ethic and the and the coaching it's you know because it's they they run their their programs under the pro teams so it goes all the way down to the, when you first start playing if you're part of the okrit team it's you go through the those stages through the mites the squirts the peewees right and your goal is to make make the pro team but um all those coaches work together and collaborate together you know as, as a whole organization um and they're there you know for years it's not like we're over here it's basically more the dads follow the kids right with, with the coaching um so it's i think it makes a big difference yeah that totally would make a big difference for sure that is the model here right i mean that's what i've even done you know started at adam and moved on to u13 and you know i'm not coaching my oldest now at u15 but you usually just graduate with with your kids and you don't stay in that in that one age group which which like i said it's different coaching u9 is different than coaching u11 it's different than coaching u13 right and you start to figure out the developmental things that click and the things that don't i could see how that could be a big advantage for sure um, so is, is those paid positions then over there? They must be, obviously, if they're through the pro team, then they have non-parent coaches that just yeah. stay in, in that environment. Yeah, yeah, they are. So that um, one of my old teammates, he's in charge of the, the program. So the Hungarian government gave um, them a bunch of money to the hockey program. So he started basically the academy there. Or there was there was some type of academy before, but... Um, um, it's, it starts at, uh, I can't remember, maybe U12 and goes up from there. So they got all these teams. So, you know, they got two ice sheets and they got all the locker rooms for them there. Um, uh, but there's, he's got 30 coaches he's hired, 30 coaches for all those teams. And he's got ones designated for everyone, like all the equipment's provided for these, these players and kids they are on the ice like every day. And so I was there this summer and I asked him, he's showing me around and everything, what they're doing. And just kind of asking my opinion on, on things. And as I, so I asked him, I said, what is it? I said, what's each, what's it cost each kid to do this? Uh, you know, basically it's almost like what a prep school would be here. He's like, Oh, it's free. I'm like, what? I said, over in the U S or Canada, that you're paying like 30, 50 grand for something like this. And it's free. I'm like, that's unbelievable. Right. And that's so, we're over here, as you see, just the cost, it's crazy. And then, then you, you know, you might be eliminated in one player or two that could help make a difference to push the next ones because of, because of the financial situation. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's through government money. You're saying there in these European countries, it's, it's funded, it's funded, uh, to the government federally. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that would be an answer. I mean, that's definitely one of the biggest challenges for sure now. And it actually breaks my heart too. Like, you know, you already said it, right? Like you wouldn't have probably played pro if, if that was the way it was. And and now like how the many only- people are we leaving behind because because the costs are so expensive and they get expensive early, right? As soon as you start playing travel or competitive, it's it, it gets really expensive, you know, and oh, um, it's, it's a lot of players but- out, of the, out of the ecosystem. 
you know, like here here in our area, so our boys, you know, in, in Kentucky, Ohio area, like football and baseball's big, basketball. But uh, we, the boy, my boys started doing football these last two years, and, and, and they love it. And I love it because it's they can walk to practices for one, <laughs> and I don't have to run them. <laughs> um, but although, you know, that's fun for me. I love still coaching and stuff, but it's um, it's nice to – sit back as dad and, and watch as well. But, you know, the fees for them to play football is $200 for the season and they get all the equipment. I'm like, man, you can't even get a stick nowadays for $200. Right. Right. And that, that, you know, that's just one piece of the equipment, the way kids grow with, with their feet. And I got one kid on my team. He's went through three pairs of skates. He's into a size 11 now and he's a 2009. Right. Um, and you just think, Right, like it's and and a kid that size and that way, you're not buying them the 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 cheap pair because you got to he'll just break those down in a month's time, right? So you're you know you're looking at the mottos now that are up upwards of thousand bucks, yeah. You know, and that that stuff starts to add up, and 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 the travel part of it, right? It's usually what the fees are. You can probably double that, and that's what your travel costs are going to be with you know, hotels and all that and meals on the road. So it is, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big, that's why I tell my, all the kids I coach, like I always tell them like, you better be appreciative of this. Cause it, it is a big commitment for, for families financially and, and time. Yeah, for sure. And isn't that a difference too, between the European model and the North American model? Like there's so many people here in North America that are really game driven. Like they, you know, 75 games a season for these, for these kids that are, you know, 11 years old. Whereas um, the European model is, is more practice time, less competition time. Isn't, isn't that true? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and I see it now when I'm coaching, like, um, you know, it, it, you know, one part is t- you want to keep teaching the accountability, right? Well, that accountability is showing up on time and being at all the practices, right? And, and having all your, your equipment and being organized and all that. Um, but, I, you know, I'll see that at times. Like, oh, you know, jo- Johnny's not coming this, this weekend because, you know, it could be a practice weekend. But if it's the game weekend, they're all there and it's you know rightfully so parents who who wants to watch practice you know you'd rather watch a game once 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 they're and, and i even say say it even at the old timers levels right if you as soon as you put a, a scoreboard up there with a time and a score the whole game changes right <laughs> it's yeah. just that psychological part but it's you know i tell my parents so we we use that iceberg analytics and i use that as a, as a teaching tool um for the team and for the players individually, but it's, it's amazing. These, these analytics nowadays, and, you know, some, some parents say, well, all these analytics are crazy. I'm like, well, it's the same as analytics has always been kept. It's stats, it's games played. It could be goals, assists, penalty minutes could be, um, you know, for goalies, you know, shots or whatever. Right. Um, It's just, it's just now on, it's taking it to the next level with the analytics and the stats. But I, um, ones that I look at with the kids when I, when I run them is, is the shift time possession time um, and all that. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell kids, okay, you know, Connor McDavid's probably one of, he's your best player in the world. He plays 25 minutes a game. 
And he's got a minute and a half puck possession time. So he plays 95% of the game without the puck. So, you know, I said, well, now look at our team here, our top player. He's a minute and a half puck possession time. He had 17 minutes of ice time. You know, he's playing majority of the game without the puck. So I'm like, where do you th guys think you're going to get better? Right? You, now you go to a practice of 60 minutes, you probably get 60 minutes of uh, puck possession and time. Um, right. So when you when you break it that that way to the to the parents and stuff and um, you know it's just that that's the reality of it and that's the one part you know trying to teach them okay if there's more to the game when you have the puck right it's it's if you're gonna play the game ninety percent of the game without it right it's we got to focus on what you're doing when you don't have the puck and you know maybe this is why you're puck possession time is down in the game and you know you go over over videos and stuff but it's it's nowadays with these analytics it's crazy i mean you can you can run everything and it, it shows everything and it's it's you know it's a real stat really it's the same as if you're counting your goals and assists there's just now we're just there's just a thousand ways to break it down and uh, how we yeah. utilize that information to make you better individually and how do we make the team better right it's um you know one i I, I would look at is is giveaways right so it counts giveaways and you know my team was really high and i'm like look it's our, we got to have a team goal uh to get down to this percentage right and now let's look at why that it's this giveaway percentage is so high individually and as a team right so there's watching the video there's no no puck support or maybe you're panicking with the puck and it's just teaching tools right trying to help them yeah. and that's what i find with 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 video it's they you know kids nowadays they they, they want to see it it's you draw it on the board and um where they probably can't read my chicken scratch anyway it's just better i just put everything on the video and and let it go because they want to see it visually um yeah. and there's, no, this, there's those I mean, tools out there yeah, I mean, I was just going to – sorry to cut you off there, but it was a great point with the whole – I mean, identifying how, how much of the game is, is not with the puck on your stick. And I was just reflecting while you were saying that um, my my U15 son was was in a tournament this past weekend, and, and I ended up doing the video for the parents, right, or the Facebook feed or whatever, right, live. And I, I was doing, like, essentially commentary, and I was and I was yeah. coaching kind of through the commentary, you know, like talking about certain scenarios and stuff. And anyways, it was crazy how many people came up to me and, like, thanked me for doing that. And, oh, I've learned so much, you know, parents uh, mostly, right, or grandparents. and um, But then the boys were all obviously watching it too. And and there was there was something to be said for that because we spend so much time on physical skills too, right? Like everyone is so good uh, because so much emphasis is put on that now. But I find that as a coach, it is hard to find the time to teach all those areas away from the puck, right? Like that there is, like we talked about that earlier at the start, like the, the conceptual side of hockey and like what you're trying to accomplish when, when you don't have the puck and you're on offense, like what are you trying to do in that scenario? Or you don't have the puck and you're on defense, what are you trying to do in that scenario? And, um, and I think that those are usually the parts that are overlooked yet. That's essentially the mass, the, the, the majority part of the game is, is that right? Like, how are you affecting the game when you don't have the puck in your stick? Cause that's most of the players out there. So, um, yeah, I, I love yeah. that you do that, and, and and using video is a great tool for that, and and actually it it sparked some interest for me is actually to create some some learning videos just in general. 
um, for players out there because I think it is something that uh, that they don't get enough of. And I know at the junior level with the coaches that I'm working at and even the midget level, I mean, it's like they're they're always amazed at how little the players understand the game, you know, at that point that they haven't yeah. learned X, Y, yeah. or Z to this point. So um, anyways. And that's, I mean, uh, that's, that's, that's where I find um you know a, a weekday practice right it's it's parents running from work you know grabbing something to eat getting the, the the kids on time for practice and them jumping on the ice and then they're they're running right you know after practice because you got to get home get your homework finished and ready you know for bed and school the next day and that's where i find like these i do these weekends where I, we call them high performance weekends and we'll do two uh, on ice practices on a saturday and I'll mix in video and off ice between those two, and then we'll do two on a Sunday. Um, and I just find those are those work better for to try and do some of the teaching with the off ice stuff and the video, right? Because during the week, it, it's it's hard to you don't have the time. You're not going to yeah. spend thirty five minutes before or after a practice. Uh, maybe some teams do, but it's um, for my team. I think it'd be too too tough. Um, so that those weekends work well. You, right. you know, yeah, of course, you know, obviously it's, it's not a game weekend, but that's where some people maybe don't understand it's, they're going to get more out of this practice weekend than they are, you know, us playing four games. Right. Um, so it's just that, just finding that balance between that. I think, you know, playing too many games, it's okay. It, it, you might be having, and you can see at the younger years, you might be having success, but you know, how is that success? happening are you are you cheating the game or is it you know how are those situations coming and you you know you keep playing all these games you might be just those bad habits just keep getting stronger and stronger where you you know you don't even have time to correct it yeah no for sure <clears throat> and then it's balancing i guess that passion like you say i mean kids are passionate about competition as as you as you pointed out you mean put a scoreboard up there and, and the players love it and and sometimes it's a little bit harder to get that uh that love out of practice but it's, oh, it's always in, the one in, in, in yeah and practices that's uh, I'll, I'll do like a red versus black team stuff oh yeah, yeah. and it's well you know when we played Right. It was uh, when, when that stuff happened, man, you know, that was usually when when fights would break out. And uh, but that's, where you, 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 you know, obviously not at the youth level, but you're trying to create that um, competitive part in the practice and, and keep it obviously within the boundaries. Because, you know, I tell my kids, like, look, you guys are still on the same team. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I want you guys playing hard, but I don't want you guys trying to take each other's heads off either right um you're still on the same team here <laughs> but yeah, yeah just trying to create that in, in in practice and that's and that's you know that's when you see them get engaged and and you know you're getting the most out of them um so anytime um that i can do that to make it a competition it's um i really see them you know now they're sweating working which is what you want yeah for sure yeah. for sure any, um, I think we should touch maybe just on your on your time for the with the Hungarian program. You're of Hungarian descent, and you got to spend some time with the national the team program there. Uh, what was your experience like there on the international level, and 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 being a part of what Hungary had going on? Yeah, so I, you know, when I played and uh, I went when I first went to Austria, I went to the Red Bull team out of Salzburg, um, and that's where I played majority of my end of my career was in the Austrian league. Uh, and I just, 
I tell people, they ask me, well, where, where all did you play? I said, well, whoever, whoever would hire me, basically. <laughs> I was all over the place. Uh, but my, my last four years was the team out of Hungary, which was in the Austrian League. Um, and uh, Kevin Primo, I don't know if you remember Kevin, he was the coach there. He used to coach with the Oilers. Um, so when I first went there, and there were some other players there, Harlan Pratt, uh, who I grew up, he grew up in Redwater. You, you'd probably remember him from Short Park. Um, so there was yeah. there were some players that I knew there. And um, so when I when I first went there, I really loved it. I loved the, the country, the people in the city. Um, the Hungarians actually remind me a lot of the Finnish, just, you know, uh, just real hardworking working people and and down to earth and you know kind of about the team and so i really i really enjoyed it we had we had some good seasons there um and after my second season they they'd approach me and you know at that point i was 39 i was <laughs> i was unsure you know i was thinking well this is enough's enough here um because the kids were getting at the age too they were going to hungarian school they actually both spoke fluent hungarian um right you know my wife and i always say well if they were smart they would have kept it up and they would have had a secret language against us <laughs> we wouldn't <laughs> have a clue what they're talking about um but of course you know after a year gone from there they 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 lost it um but no we you know the family and i really really loved it there loved the people they were great to us and so that the team had approached me you know say hey you know would you be willing to play on our national team if we were to get your citizenship and i said yeah absolutely because i i you know after the two years there i built relationships with all these hungarian players and majority of our national team players were playing on our our team that played in the austrian league um so in my mind it was like yeah if anything i can do to help help the the team and help my existing teammates absolutely um, so they granted me and, uh, there was another Canadian guy, Andrew Sauer, who's from, uh, Saskatoon area. They granted us, um, citizenship. And that at first, uh, we'd, we'd actually just got it like two weeks before the, the world championship tournament. So we were unsure of, you know, okay, are we going to get it? Are we going to play? Cause we stayed after the season to train and practice with them and we ended up getting it and we, we went to, it was a pool B in Krakow, Finland, or, or Poland, sorry. Um, and we qualified to move up to pool A. I was like, wow, it was unbelievable. Like it was a pretty exciting time for for Hungary. And it was, it, it was great because after that, it, you know, like I was telling you earlier, my friend, you know, who's running the, the academy there, right? It was okay. We'd, hockey drew some attention soccer was always the number one sport right now they started putting more money into the to the hockey program and rinks started going up so it was cool to see that happen like to be a part of that to you know it's that team was helping change the culture and and everything of hockey in in the country hungry and um and then yeah the next year we went pool a and that you know that was you know playing against Canada and U.S. My last game, I retired after that tournament. I was <laughs> at that time 41, but my last game was against Team USA, you know, playing against players like 
Austin Matthews and uh, you know all these great players and, and Connor McDavid right playing against Team Canada and Brad Marchand and just seeing it was it was amazing to see kind of how the where the game has came from where we started how much if I look back through those twenty years how it evolved it's it's unbelievable. Really? What was that experience like? Like that's uh, so like to win. I didn't realize Hungary was even a Pool B, so that was surprising me to hear that. And then you to to qualify for Pool A. Wow, what an accomplishment! What was what was that like? A forty-one-year-old Frankie Bantam trying to keep up with uh, Austin Matthews. How how are how you doing? Yeah, well, that my last year is. I was really probably one. I hit thirty-five, thirty-six, and knees started to really go, and my one knee was was pretty bad i guess uh, millions of shots right uh, just shooting and shooting and, and falling on the ice it was just starting to catch up um so my last year uh well i had surgery that summer and then uh i was just fighting my knee i was getting it drained i was getting drained every game and they were shooting it up like it was uh and even i was like man I, you know in my mind at, at the, at the camp before we went to the pool a which was in st petersburg uh that year uh, i was like man i don't know if i can make it like my knee was was shot and i'm like you know what i gotta do whatever i can so i talked with the coaches and we we'd agreed upon like you know they're like well we want you there no matter what whether it's if you play or not but just for the support you know the younger guys all look up to you respect you and just you know you just you being around the team is is enough so we we'd agreed that um before then that you know i wasn't going to play all the games um but play some might so i can't i think i ended up playing three three games four games i'm not sure I played against slovakia canada and us um but yeah it was um you know i remember one shift i got caught out there with connor mcdavid and he went around me like it was like me going around my kids and i was going as fast as i could and I was like, I, I felt like he was like, he wasn't trying. And I'm like, are you kidding? And and on the play, Brad Marchand scores on the play. And we line up for the faceoff. And I look over to Marshy and I was like, man, I was like, there's no way a freaking, I was ever going to catch that guy. He's unbelievable. And and Marshy, you know, who was a top player in the world himself, says to me, he's like, he goes, it's unbelievable how good he is at his age. Um. And now I don't feel so bad because now when I, I I see highlights on TV, he does it to those guys too. So, <laughs> but yeah, it was it's just amazing that the the you know I, I was sitting on the bench with my one buddy that I was telling you, Chaba Kovac is his name, who uh, is running the academy now in Hungary, and he was the next oldest guy on, um, I think in the tournament he was thirty four, I was forty one, um, you know it was. <laughs> we were the old guys, but I'm sitting on the bench with him, and I look over him in the Canadian game, and the guys are just freaking. I said, "They need a speed limit out here." I'm like, God, God. "Like this is unbelievable how fast the guys are." I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> "Oh man, that's awesome!" But no, it was oh, it was, it was, it was a good cool. experience to see that. Yeah, yeah, what well, yeah. fantastic man. We uh, well, maybe we'll, we'll wrap it up. I mean, I really appreciate it. We had a little fun. bit of technical difficulty there, and thanks for picking up your phone uh, halfway through and, and getting her done. But 
Great yeah. to catch up. I mean, so many years and so many stories and, and great to see that you're still giving back and being a part of the game there in Cincinnati and helping it grow. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that I, th- that I think we're both probably pretty passionate about is, is trying to keep the game alive and, and keep it strong and, and, uh, and keep growing it. So thanks for doing that. And thanks for spending some time here today with us. Yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to get up that way. I'm not sure if you still do the father-son uh, trip, but I know we spoke about that until COVID hit. Um, right. I'd definitely like to get back for 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 that. That's uh, that that sounds like a a great bonding experience, um, which is you know one thing you kind of take for granted, right? Is that time that time with your with your kids with the you know everyday busy life. But um, yeah, hopefully if if you're still doing that there i get up there at some point to uh to attend that that'd be fun well that's awesome yeah well we'll make it happen but uh, yeah thanks have a happy holiday here we're recording this right before christmas so i don't know when it'll be released probably a little after but happy holidays to everybody out there listening and uh thanks for tuning in frank thanks for being here okay thank you for joining us today frank and i uh, for our conversation. Uh, that was a long time coming, so Frank, if you are still listening, or uh, even if you're not, I, I always like to thank my guests. So thank you so much for taking the time with me uh, and allowing my uh, my listeners the opportunity to know a little bit about you and a little bit about what it what it takes to uh, to play pro for 20 years and, and, uh, and what it takes to score 83 goals in the WHL. And and the trials and tribulations of uh, of trying to grind it out in the in the pro hockey lifestyle. So, thank you so much for your for your wisdom and for your shares. Uh, I really love your perspective and and all the ideas about coaching that you shared. And uh, it sounds like the the players of Cincinnati are really uh, benefiting from from having you behind their bench. So, uh, thanks again for everyone out there. Once again, happy holidays. All the best in 2023. And until next time, play hard.